Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. Hi, Stephen. How are you today? Hi, Paul. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, I can hear through your voice. And we've been talking just before we started recording that you have a slight call today, which is unusual. Maybe maybe I'll sound even more respectable, if that's the, if that's the right word, <laughs> with, a, with a gravelly voice. I don't know. Um, authoritative. That's the word I'm looking for. That's the word. I'm very excited about the episode today because uh, we're going to talk about internationalization uh, with a guest who's also a friend. She lives in Singapore and I myself used to live in Asia, so I'm very, very looking forward to the discussion you'll both be having. But before we introduce her, would you like maybe to give us a bit of context about why are we talking about this topic today? Yeah, so as you know, we Notion has invested in you know, more than 50 enterprise technology companies that, that all start in Europe. These companies are, are all very different and are solving very different problems, but they have a number of things very much in common. One is that they all want to build big global category leading companies. And, and two, they all recognize that they cannot do that without some significant and substantial internationalization. And while in their, their early part of their journey, maybe you know, while they're finding product market fit and they're, they're kind of going through the startup phase of kind of one to five million, they're really focused on their domestic market and really establishing the foundations for a bigger business. But as they start to grow and we go, we call it the kind of grow up phase, typically five to 25 million, figuring out the strategy for international growth is, is critical. And in particular, two things. One is obviously the most common and it has been and will remain so, is the, the U.S. expansion. Mm. And the other that increasingly is becoming a very, very common topic of conversation is expansion into Asia, and, and quite rightly so. And um, I'm particularly excited to have our guest today because she really is a kind of global technology citizen and has firsthand experience of you know, helping companies build their presence in three technology hubs around the world. So uh, delighted to, to welcome Susie Hughes. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And you're live from uh, Singapore, if I'm not mistaken. I am indeed. Wow. Yes. <laughs> you just mentioned something, Stephen, about, you know, of course, the expansion to Asia, about the importance of it. And uh, I actually now call Asia, you know, the new downtown, because, you know, what, is it, what, 5 billion people are concentrated there and with a very fast emerging economies. I mean, of course, Singapore is not anymore an emerging economy with everything surrounded, plus obviously the weight of China, plus the traditional economies like uh, South Korea or Japan. All these make it uh, fascinating. That's why I keep going back. So I'm very excited to have you, Susie, here uh, today. Which so Stephen, how many of your portfolio companies have actually tried or are in the process of going Probably 60-70% of all of our portfolio have um, U.S. expansion. Wow. And I'd say there's probably about a dozen who have you know, their first footholds in, into Asia. One with a fairly significant presence in, in China, which is Trade Shift. And then a number who have established at least a foothold in Singapore. Some who have experience obviously doing business down in Australia and New Zealand, and that, that's becoming an increasingly common topic of conversation, and a handful who have looked at doing business in Japan as well. 
And, you know, I think the interesting aspect for me of, of the journey that we've been on with Notion is, is actually one of discovery and, and learning and knowledge and, and building networks. And then, you know, tapping into to people like Susie, who, if I just put her in context, so she's a vice president at Allison Partners. And Allison Partners is a, a global communications agency that is really kind of rooted in the technology space and, and worked with many of the iconic tech brands that we now take for granted, such as uh, WhatsApp. And Scott, the founder, has told me the stories about, you know, working with those guys in the garage back in the day. And he's founded on a global basis. And Susie, I think you've been with Allison Partners for, for 10 years now and initially working out of the US office yes. in San Francisco and then out of the, the London office for about three years, I think, when, when we first met. Longer than that, actually, I think. Yeah, I was there for five. Five years, and then um, two years now in Singapore. So you've got a really interesting and relatively unique perspective on the challenge. And that, that's kind of where I wanted to start, which is, you know, what do you see that is kind of common to those sectors and what's fundamentally different when we talk San Francisco, London and Singapore? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, Stephen, I started my career in the tech space in San Francisco almost 13 years ago, and then dove into the tech scene when I arrived in the UK, and I've done the same in Singapore. And the things that I see to be similar are that tech hubs around the world now, given my experience, are similar in that they are collaborative. They are places where people turn to each other for for learning. There is support for success and there is sort of a thirst for tactical knowledge. I experienced that certainly in Silicon Valley, although that is the most mature of the three. And then when I arrived in London in 2011 and the tech hub was just getting off the ground, there was a very similar sense of collaboration and growing together and building an identity as a place to build technology companies. When I arrived in Singapore, I experienced it again for the third time. However, that's the least mature of the three. And in some ways, Singapore now in 2018 feels like the UK tech scene, you know, Silicon Roundabout, Tech City, that kind of thing, about three or four years ago. But that spirit of collaboration and wanting to learn and help each other uh, is very much what's similar. I think the things that are most different just go back to the levels of maturity, so there are obviously huge amounts of investment money in San Francisco. But in my time in London, I did start to see that an attitude was changing in the sense that businesses were starting to realize they didn't have to rush to U.S. investors to get their businesses off the ground, that they could, in fact, build things from London or other parts of Europe with investment there. And likewise, investors from the U.S. were starting to take interest in that part of the world. And now we're seeing that in Singapore. So the VC community, for example, was not really established at all four or five years ago, but now you're seeing quite a lot of venture capital activity, that ecosystem is growing, and you're starting to be able to pinpoint who the stars might be. We might not be at unicorn stage yet, but you know who they are going to be. I mean, obviously we talked a lot about Singapore. I mean, it's a fascinating kind of hub and maybe we should come back to that. But Asia as in and of itself, I mean, if we think of Europe as being, you know, heterogeneous and, and fragmented, Asia in as a whole can't really be considered as a market. And so you must have seen some very, very significant differences across the, the Asian region. And I'm wondering how you kind of advise the companies you work with in terms of thinking about the, 
the, the fundamental differences across Asia, I mean, China, Japan, you know, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, certainly, Asia can't be considered one place. In fact, it's, you know, more than 50 diverse markets, and they do require a very different approach. The majority of the work I do is around Southeast Asia. But even within those markets, the way the media operates, the way the business landscape operates, the way consumers think is quite different. And so when it comes to advising clients on how to approach those markets, the first thing is to think about whether or not your solution or technology or whatever it is that you're offering is going to make sense in a particular market. So, for example, in places like Indonesia and the Philippines, these are fast-growing populations, upwardly mobile, young demographics. But in many parts of those countries, there are still issues with quite basic things that have long been solved in the West, such as last mile delivery and things like that. So you need to consider if something you're offering is going to rely on infrastructure like that, if it would make sense for you to be there. Similarly, there might be issues with connectivity if you are only a web-based or cloud-based solution. The other thing on the B2B side is that even among the C-suite and some of these growing markets, there isn't the tech literacy, even among CTOs and CEOs and things like that, that you might be used to in the West. So companies have to think very carefully about how they're going to educate their prospective customers on what it is that they're offering. Now, where I get involved in that primarily is around how to do that through content and media. And so understanding how the media landscapes work is really critical. And I won't get into the many specific differences, but just to give you some examples in Singapore, for example, you know, it's very much considered a first world place. The way the media operates is not dissimilar to the US and the UK. It's sophisticated. It's discerning. You know, journalists want to make sure that the stories that they're telling are very relatable to their Singaporean readers. Now, in markets that are still growing and establishing some of these processes, the media might be less sophisticated. There can be advantages to that because you might be able to give them some prepackaged content and see it published. But you also might have to understand that you need to educate even technology journalists, perhaps, about what it is that you are offering. And there are certain ways to do that. So for example, in some of those markets, face-to-face meetings go a very long way, product demos, things like that. Whereas in my experience in the U.S. and the U.K., journalists aren't able uh, in the same way to take time away from their desk for face-to-face meetings. A lot more is done on email and phone. So companies considering launching here and spending time here also need to be aware that they will need to make themselves available to the people who run the channels. So that could be trade media, mainstream media, things like that, that are ultimately reaching their prospective customers. I think that that makes a lot of sense. You've got to take responsibility for educating the market. It doesn't actually matter where, where you're doing business in the world. If you're doing something different from the rest of the competitors, or you're doing something different from what the market has seen previously, you need to take responsibility for educating to the problems you solve. I wonder if you then think about it from the other side. I mean, you've really created some really interesting kind of stories there in terms of, well, these are some of the things you should consider as the downside. When you think about the opportunity that Asia as a huge beguiling market represents, how do you position that to companies coming into the region to say, 
actually, this is really exciting and there is a huge amount of potential, notwithstanding the fact that you've got to make some hard choices about where you, you choose to go. But, you know, do you see it as somewhere where it is going to become a more natural market for European technology companies, perhaps over and above the U.S.? Yeah, I would say that's very possible. And the main reason for that is the speed of technology adoption is unlike anywhere else in the world, certainly that I've experienced. And that is particularly true of mobile technologies. So if we look at how technology was adopted by the consumer, most specifically in the US and the UK, it was relatively linear. We can see that people had computers at home, then there might have been one family computer in the home, then each individual family member may have had their own laptop that they use in different spaces of the home, then everybody started to have their own smartphone. And now, of course, we're mobile led. But in some of the markets that I was mentioning earlier, particularly in Southeast Asia, that is all being leapfrogged. And there are a huge number of people who will experience the internet really on mobile only. You know, they will never sit down in front of a desktop screen in the way that we know it. And so they will only know the internet in that format and it needs to function in that way. At the same time, these same communities and populations are becoming very used to things on demand because mobile is well structured for that on-demand rides, on-demand food. I have a client that is working in Jakarta in relation to things to do with on-demand laundry and things like that. Up and coming young people who have disposable income for the first time are spending it in these places to make their lives easier and they're doing it via mobile. So that is a huge opportunity. Now, I'm speaking about the consumer opportunity. So, you know, players in e-commerce, things like that can probably clearly see where that might be. But for B2B, of course, what the opportunity is and is going to be is that all of that relies on underlying infrastructure. So it relies on strong connectivity. It relies on strong cloud-based services and things like that. So the opportunity for B2B organizations is to be able to come in and provide the infrastructure to service providers who are then able to support that high level of mobile demand. So yes, absolutely. The opportunity there is big and the advantage for, for first movers is huge, but it's moving quickly. So the first movers may no longer be the first movers, uh, may maybe the second or third movers, but they can still get in there, as it were. Yeah, well, history has shown us, hasn't it, that it's not always the first mover that's most successful. But I have heard from some of our portfolio about the speed of decision making. And obviously, all of our companies, our, our enterprise, are selling to business, but many of them are selling mobile-first uh, technology solutions. And the decision making can be a lot, a lot quicker. That's exciting. And even had some examples of, of companies in the portfolio who have seen the ability to win very big clients across Southeast Asia that are actually global multinationals and then selling from there back into the US or Europe, which is kind of um, slightly bizarre, but actually makes sense because yes. there, you know, there's, there's this you know, yes. said, entire emerging population, urbanization, increasing disposable income. So how do people... How do people get up to speed? I mean, I have personal experience of how effective this can be. When I was out in Singapore at the beginning of the year, and you, Susie, were, were fantastic, introduced me to all sorts of different people. And everybody is incredibly welcoming, which is great. 
But on the flip side, actually, I, I really, as an entrepreneur, I need to very quickly kind of get up to speed and familiarize myself with the market. So how do you, how do you advise companies from outside of Southeast Asia to, to kind of get their head around the, the challenge, the opportunity and the differences? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, as companies are growing, they do need to do these things quickly. But I will say it is critical also for business leaders and entrepreneurs as they're doing this to be willing to have patience with it at the same time. Um, and I'll explain a bit what I mean. So in terms of familiarizing, it's certainly not rocket science. I would say that reading the local media, I mean, of course, as a communications person, I would say that, but in any market, it's a good way to get a sense of what the national concerns are. In Singapore, those papers are the Straits Times and the Business Times. The English-speaking papers in Thailand are Bangkok Post and The Nation. In the Philippines, it's the Manila Bulletin. In Indonesia, it's the Jakarta Post. And of course, it's critical to do that because you understand who the spokespeople for the nation are, both in terms of company spokespeople, so who are the major business players and in government. So that's one way. And then, of course, the willingness to do what you did, Stephen, which was to come out here, use the connections that you do have to expand your network is really, really important. As we were saying before, you can't generalize Asia as a singular market, but something that is true of everywhere that I have spent time and done business so far is the emphasis on in-person relationships and face-to-face meetings. Those things go an extremely long way. Now, of course, in somewhere like Singapore, which has a history of being well-connected to the rest of the world and is consistently ranked as one of the friendliest places to do business in the world, there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. But in Asia, as companies from other countries show up and want to do business there, while they're happy to collaborate, they do want to see that there's a true commitment to the market and that business leaders can say, you know, it's not just a, another list on our location page of our website, it's not just a city, another city or country that's listed there, but rather we have a real business reason for doing that, for being here, and that also we will be giving back to the community as well. So starting with local media, using, even if they're just tenuous connections to get introduced to other people. LinkedIn can be very helpful for that. Also, of the businesses that you might know that are based here, almost everybody has a corporate blog these days. It can be a very good way to read about business culture. If you're on the company blog of a local business or even a multinational that's based here and see about the things that their business leaders are doing, their employees are doing, the kind of events that they're going to. Be aware of the regional events for your industry. So everyone in Europe and the US is familiar with things like Web Summit and Collision, but those guys do have an associated event out here called Rise. I was just there three weeks ago. It's certainly one of the best uh, in the region. And so being familiar with those and spending time at those things, I think are the best ways to get up to speed. So there's, there's certainly quick ways to lay a foundation, but there is no quick way to build those relationships and entrepreneurs and founders need to be committed and have patience in doing that because the payoff will be much greater. Yeah. I mean, it's the way the world goes, but I do think that it is interesting that those kind of face-to-face and kind of personal relationships are, are very important across the Asian region. Being committed, being you know, consistently available and, and making a personal as well as a financial investment in the region is important. So who, who have you seen do this really well in terms of 
entering a market, winning the first new clients. Any one particular organizations that you, you look to and say, this organization really did, a, really did it well? A couple of ideas come to mind. One would be Stripe, the payment solution that I'm sure you're familiar with. So when it was very small, it was in Ireland, but it found its permanent home in Silicon Valley, where it is now, and then expanded into Asia. And Stripe essentially did a lot of what I was just talking about. So they did place a business lead here. I know her. She's a, she's a wonderful, smart lady. And she spent quite a lot of time, you know, really speaking to prospective customers and other stakeholders in the market, so the business community and things like that. And I believe, if I'm not wrong, that Stripe did that for about a year before they announced their full launch. And when they did that, they had a bank of goodwill, first of all, and also some real stories to tell. So clients that they had signed on, um, many of which are recognizable, not just in the region, but the world. And what that allowed them to do, and again, you know, as we've spoken about, I'm a communications professional, so I see it primarily through that lens. But what that allowed them to do is it gave them a runway. Because what you don't want to happen is to show up in a market, announce that you're here, have an office launch party, and then have nothing else to say about what you're doing, what your vision is, what you have achieved or what you will achieve. And it's, it's there's only one chance to make a first impression. It can be very hard to get it back. But if you do spend the time, it doesn't have to be exactly how, how Stripe did it. That's one way with a person. It could be, you know, just committing to lots of visits and building those in-person relationships in other ways, as, as we talked about. But you want to be building a bank of things to share and talk about, again, to show that you are not just showing up in a new market to stick a flag in it, um, but rather to really commit to being a good business citizen for the good of your own organization and for your peers. Actually, I was wondering, Paul, if you might, because you've, you've got a lot of experience doing business uh, working out. What I really liked about what Susie just mentioned is uh, I was living myself in Asia now. I left, what, eight years ago or something. I lived in Manila and Tokyo and other places. And that launch party thing, you know, like <laughs> it was what was happening back then. You know, you wanted to have a name of the door, New York, London, Tokyo, Singapore. And that was pretty much it. But I think that now this change, I see, I mean, we mentioned the term unicorns. And although they're a very, very B2C yet, when you see like Indonesia, Susie mentioned Jakarta, you know, you have a Gojek, Traveloka, you have a Bukalapak and Tokopedia, they're all unicorns. You have four unicorns, obviously, it's a big country, but it shows that it's going very, very fast. And my second comment, and that also Susie implied to you, is that there's so much difference. You know, it's very hard to talk about Asia because you're going from, you know, the subcontinent in India to, you know, the Philippines to Japan to, and they all have very different dynamics. But the importance of face to face meetings, the importance of creating long lasting relationships, it takes a long time. It's not easy, but there's something very rewarding about it, like everywhere in the world, probably, but there's something very rewarding about once you put the work to it, in the long term, it always pays off. This is why, for my own business, 60% of my revenues are still in Asia, and I've left eight years ago, because once you've established this, this type of relationship, they stay. But the only thing I would 
advice for people to resist is this what again Susie said like let's do a launch party because it's cool to be in Asia because everybody talks about it these days but to do to do the work before attempting to go there and maybe talk to Susie actually about it <laughs> I think that's a, a very a very good piece of advice and I, I think one other thing I would suggest and I mean you, you position that really well Paul in terms of the these incredible differences across the region and, and the incredible scale of opportunity is you've got to make choices You've really got to think long and hard about, you know, the, the customers you, you want to serve and, and how you're going to win them and, and to create a, a narrow focus. And nearly every one of the executives I've spoken to who's had success across the Asian region talks about making those hard choices. It's this market, this segment, these customers it's create some critical mass. And until we've got some significant, you know, economies of scale, let's not spread ourselves too thin. Oh, well, one more thing. It's not valid in every market and there's like some differences. So please forgive me for the large generalization, but because we're talking here B2B SaaS businesses, there's also, whether it's banking, et cetera, we, we're talking about usually, especially in the emerging market side of where you are, a smaller number of players, traditional players owning a very large share of the market. So at the same time, it makes it easier because you know who you have to talk. At the same time, it makes it sometimes harder because there will be more resistance. When you disrupt them, you're actually going head on very quickly. Yeah, I would say that can be the case. It goes back to knowing the landscape that you're entering in and not to make any assumptions. I think that's something that mm -hmm. um, I've learned now from working across different markets is the quick way to think about something can be to just think, oh, well, it's, you know, it's probably done the way that I know how to do it. <laughs> but to make those assumptions, that can backfire. So I think, yeah, it just goes back to knowing the landscape that you're entering and understanding who's there. And, and also remembering that, you know, in certain markets, there will be a lot of pride around homegrown businesses and organizations and services. That's and, very true. Um, yeah. You know, you don't want to come in and say that your thing is better necessarily. Again, it's thinking about who the customers are and what you're offering. Very true. Susie, thank you very much. It's been really interesting and it always is. And we're fortunate to have, you know, you and, and Alison partners supporting our portfolio as they as they think about these challenges. So, you know, thank you very much. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for having me. And I would highly encourage people who are thinking about doing any type of movie in Asia to talk to you, Susie. Thank you very much, Paul. Appreciate it. Glad to chat to anybody. <laughs> Thank you.